There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real-life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo, and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome back, everyone, to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Thank you for joining me here on another episode. I I have to say, I mean, I think we got another good one for you. Today, I welcome the president of Menu Matters. She's also the founder, Maeve Webster. And we do a deep dive on the industry, uh, really it trends within the food service industry and how Gen Z is now playing a part of that and millennials. I think you're gonna find this conversation very fascinating. All right, Maeve, well, welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. I really appreciate you taking time to be here with me today. And I think we're going to have a really fun conversation. I've been looking forward to this. So thank you for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Of course. How's your week been going so far? Uh, Good. Yeah, busy. It's almost spring, though. I'm in Vermont, so it's only almost spring. I know there are places that are well in spring, but we're closing in on it. Are you working on any projects right now that are, you know, anything anything exciting? Uh, yeah, no, I actually am uh, starting a couple of projects that are really interesting. Uh, obviously, they're all proprietary, so I can't speak sure. too much about the ins and outs. But but they're great projects, and all of them are very much forward looking uh, and. Uh, very inspirational and innovative in the way they're approaching their categories and the marketplace, which for me, I think is the most interesting thing is people who are willing to shake up the way things are done in the status quo, given everything that has happened in the last few years and is likely to happen in the next couple of years. I love that. Yeah. Maybe a little background on your company, Menu Matters, and how you even got into food service. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll start with how I got into food service. So I went back for my MBA when I was in my late 20s. I went to uh, the University of Illinois at Chicago to get my MBA. And uh, after having done a few different things, including acting and bouncing around a little bit, and decided I needed some kind of a steady income. So I went and got my MBA. And one of the graduates of my MBA program worked at Technomic, actually still works at Technomic. And that's, you know, I'd always been interested in food. And before I got my MBA, I had considered going back for a culinary degree. Uh, So the idea of working on the business side of food was very appealing, interesting on a lot of different levels. So I interviewed and ended up getting the job. So I worked at Technomic for uh, about three, three plus years at that point, I went off on my own. Uh, around that time, there a lot of our clients had started cutting back on their consumer insights and other insights groups, uh, given what the economy was doing. So I found that I was talking to a lot of clients who were paying for research that they never had time to do anything with. So at that time, I went off on my own as essentially an outsourced market research arm for these companies so that I could actually leverage the research they were paying for and making sure that they were getting you know, the the biggest bang for their buck, essentially. That company was then bought by Data Central, which is how I ended up at Data Central. I worked at Data Central for about 13 years. While I was there, I ended up getting my culinary degree at Le Cordon Bleu program that was being run in Chicago at the time. And uh, also during that time, moved from Chicago to Vermont 
uh, finally, after 13 years, I decided that it was time to head off on my own again and started Menu Matters. That was about eight years ago at this point, uh, with the idea being, you know, Data Central does a great job at data and data analysis, but I was interested in more uh, where does that data go? How does that data dis, uh, power strategic decision-making and mm. tactical decision-making? Uh, not just what the data is, but why should it matter to the clients and what do they do about it uh, ultimately going forward? So that was the premise of Menu Matters, and that's been going for eight years. And uh, the only other little bit of information I can give you there is that when I, because I can't have enough on my plate, when I went off and started Menu Matters, uh, my boyfriend and I bought a cafe in Bennington and ran that cafe for four years until the building was bought by a developer, which was just before the pandemic hit. So it was the most traumatic event, uh, having to close the cafe and yet... Uh, a hidden blessing given what ended up happening in 2020. So. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, 2020, you know, upended a lot of different, uh, food service was so difficult, as you know, through that whole, oh. probably a year, year and a half time period. Insane. I mean, you know, obviously nobody could have predicted the pandemic. And even if you had thought that a pandemic was possible, the way we had to completely shut down modern society and what that meant for the food service industry broadly across all of the different segments. I don't think anybody could have ever seen that coming, no matter oh, what. Yeah. You, you, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'll never forget. I think all of us probably will never forget where we were uh, when, when we first found out about it. And I remember the, the initial closures of all the, the restaurants. And I remember my dad and I, because we own our, our business together, we drove mm -hmm. around to a few of the local restaurants that we like and we noticed that some were still open, you know, in the first week and then, mm -hmm. and then, but shortly thereafter, it, it started closing left and right. And we were really worried for our own business at the time, yeah. as I'm sure you were too. What's going to be the future? What's next for us? You know, there was right. the two weeks to flatten the curve and, and all that stuff, but it ended up being a year, year and a half long process, but there's benefits that came out of it as well. I really feel like for me personally, I became an entrepreneur through that, that time. Mm -hmm. we, we started our business in 2015, but I really felt like I started to grasp it and understand it uh, through that time. So there was benefits to it, I suppose. Yeah, no, I, I actually agree with you. There's no discounting how painful it was and how traumatic it was, obviously on a personal level for so many people. But from a business perspective, those businesses who really could ended up not making it and all the hard decisions they had to make. Um, so that's, you know, you can't ever discount that. But at the same time, from an, uh, an industry perspective, mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily a bad thing long term, you know, because before the pandemic happened, everything had been going so well, right? It, it, business yeah. as usual was fantastic. And everything just kept growing. Everybody loved eating out. And I think a lot of people got a bit complacent in the way they were doing business and, and what they expected the future to hold. And the pandemic forced so much incredible innovation and, and so many new ways of thinking about things and shook things up enough that it made people, to your point, be more entrepreneurial in the way they attacked even their current businesses, let alone opening up new businesses, that to be honest with you, it wasn't entirely a bad thing. I think it's probably a long-term a healthy thing that happened to the industry. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think there was also new entrepreneurs that came into the food service space. Maybe yep. they're in a different industry or this was their moment to, to branch off and jump in. I, you know, I didn't open up a restaurant myself in 2020, but I would imagine you could probably go out and find used equipment, 
from places that have shuttered and you know save money doing that. So yeah. your cost to startup might have been less through that that time period. Totally agree. Yeah, your cost of entry was absolutely low. Rents were incredibly low. People were yep. just trying to get new businesses in. Now, of course, that probably sped up the rate of closure that we typically see in the food service industry because, you know, uh, with lower cost of entry come a lot of not necessarily great ideas. But, you know, failure generates its own kind of innovation. And I, I think it's great how many new people were coming in thinking about what else food service could be, how else food service could meet the needs of consumers, uh, all the different methods and service styles and cuisines and everything else that that suddenly started popping up, I think is fantastic. And I think we're only seeing the beginning of that because the challenges haven't stopped. So the innovation has to continue, right? Yeah, 100%. What are some of the trends that you saw coming out of COVID and then maybe some that are still ongoing into the future? Yeah, I mean, certainly the pandemic-driven trends were a lot about maximizing operational efficiency, number one, which was extremely healthy for the industry. Uh, offloading those menu items, stocks, stock items that were simply not working for you, so, kind of sitting around. Maybe they were legacy items. Maybe they were new items that just weren't performing. I think that incredibly critical analysis of menus um, was very, very good. A lot of operators just shed a lot of excess weight out of their um, operations. And so I think that was a good thing. Um, I also think it forced operators to think about specifically what the needs of their patrons were and how to mm. very specifically meet those needs, which is inherently part of any business, but it was so incredibly specific during the pandemic. And that's when we saw the operators selling toilet paper and, you know, selling their <laughs> stock to people who couldn't get it out of the grocery store. And granted, that's not long-term, but, right. but I think that kind of like I was saying earlier, that people became a bit complacent because I think a lot of operators were like, this is what I want to offer, whether people really like it or not. And so this is what we're going to do. And people will respond or they won't respond. Whereas the pandemic forced operators to think, what exactly am I going to be able to sell? What do my patrons need? And how do I meet those needs? And hopefully that will be long-term. And, and I think the successful ones will. But I think what we've seen kind of carry over with that whole maximizing efficiency, I think some operators and some segments in particular, uh, and I'll call out lodging is one, They've swung, I think, too far over to focusing on operational efficiency and are not focusing on what their patrons need. Uh, it's fine. Operational efficiency is great. But if it is happening without any kind of mind to what that means for your patrons, I think that becomes very problematic. And I think that is something we will see carry on over the next couple of years the fallout from being a little overly focused on, mac on maximizing efficiency and taking your eye off of the ball when it comes to what your patrons are actually looking for and how to create value, you know, for your patrons. Yeah, definitely. It seems like maybe almost a healthy reset for a lot of people uh, or for an industry as a whole, you know, I, I, which is which is good to have ever so often yeah. and, you know, kind of a new crop of ideas and people mm -hmm. and, and decisions. You mentioned the lodging. Could you give maybe an example of what that looks like of them being too still being too operationally efficient and how that affects their business? Yeah, I mean, I think we anybody who travels, whether it's for business or for personal over the last few years, have noticed a lot of cutbacks 
for from a lot of lodging, not all, right? So the, I'm casting a very wide net. There are some yeah. lodging operators who are doing fantastic job. Of course. But we see staffing has been cut back. Now, part of that is uh, inherently part of the staffing shortage that we're all dealing with. But I think there have been staffing cuts in order to maximize profits that I think are showing in check-in and housekeeping, certainly in the food service area. We've seen room service all but eliminated um, or certainly cut back on significantly. We've seen restaurant hours cut back significantly in many cases. And even the services that may have been provided to fill in some of those gaps, like we're seeing refrigerators, for example, in the lobby that's supposed to take the place of room service, but the quality of that food is extremely variable, extremely variable. And so we're seeing all of these cutbacks and many of them, I completely understand, right? They're, They're understandable cutbacks, but that being said, the prices for the rooms have not gone down. Uh, We've not necessarily seen an elevation in the hospitality that's being offered. And so you see prices go up, services go down, and hospitality remain neutral at best in many cases. Uh, Now, again, there are some who are excelling that are doing an incredibly great job. And so I, you know, I want to acknowledge them. But I think a lot of operators have now gotten into that defensive position and are hoping that they can stay that way to maximize profits. But at some point, you know, people are going to become pretty critical about which properties are doing a good job and which are not. And I think we'll see that probably play out in the next couple of years. Yeah, definitely. With COVID and having the food service operators go through all of that, learn new ways to operate, become more efficient. Mm -hmm. There's this big feeling around a looming recession upcoming. Do you feel like Mm -hmm. you better prepared a lot of the food service industry for that or no? No, I I do think that a lot of operators thought about emergency event planning (laughs) to one degree or another, right? If there is another pandemic, if something happens, and certainly the ongoing supply chain issues, the ongoing labor shortage issues have really forced people to be extremely critical about how they're running their operations, what's working, what's not. Again, that, that efficiency, but in this case, from a very good point of view. So I do think that they will be, most will be better prepared for a recession. Now, is a recession actually going to happen? I mean, it's, you know, the, I'm not an expert in, in the economy, and the experts all seem to have varied uh, and widely varying sure. opinions. So, but I, I think that whether it's a recession or not, I do think that there are going to be ongoing challenges. The labor market is not getting better anytime in the immediate future. I think we're going to have ongoing supply chain issues, although that continues to ease, thankfully. Uh, But, you know, on the the heels of all that will be increased competition uh, and uh, increased challenges with regard to where your competition is coming from and new segments that are going to pop up. And so I do think overall the pandemic will make us healthier because people will be longer term thinking, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So let's talk about menu matters. How did you come up with this idea? And what are some of the things, the deliverables that you give to your uh, clients? Sure. So Menu Matters really was born out of the desire to focus more strategically on mm-hmm. what, like I said, the data that you get from various sources mean to a business. Um, I really came up with the idea largely because I saw so many manufacturers and operators 
And this was early on. I think it's only gotten worse up until the pandemic when trends, you know, kind of weren't quite as important given everything else going on. But uh, you saw a lot of operators and a lot of manufacturers chasing trends. The idea that the trend was the solution and the trend was the end goal, um, when that's really not the case. In, in I would say, 90% of the cases, the trend you are chasing is not the solution you're looking for. It can be a tool toward that solution but in many cases, people were chasing trends that had no bearing on their menu strategy or their brand strategy. It what made no sense to their customer base, you know. And so, but it was a trend, and so let's let's chase after it. The desire to help operators and manufacturers think more critically about trends and not just chase them, but analyze them and evaluate them, how they relate to their strategic plans, right? What does their brand mean? Where do they want their brand to go? Who are their patrons now? Who do they want them to be? What is your menu strategy? All of that. So that was why I went off and started Menu Matters. In the early days, uh, as with all independent consulting, it was a little bit of catch as catch can. So I can't say that every project I got was necessarily focused on that. Uh, But it's definitely been an evolution that that is now the vast majority of the work I'm doing. Uh, So the kind of projects that I handle range from large-scale event speaking uh, at events like Flavor Experience, which is run by Flavor in the Menu. Yeah. Uh, Those kind of big industry events. Uh, Small, private client events where they are speaking to their leadership team, their innovation team, their sales team. And then from a deliverable point of view, I am doing everything from content creation, whether that's content for internal purposes, training, innovation, uh, inspiration, uh, as well as external sales uh, content, essentially. Uh, A lot of proprietary primary research with both operators and consumers, as well as reports and other publications that are focused on, again, that idea of you know, it's not just the trend, it's what that trend says about consumer behavior, where our culture is going, how that might impact concept development for operators, you know, our future relationship with food. I think that's, and and in that way, operators and manufacturers can stay more ahead of trends than constantly be in that position of chasing trends. When it comes to those that you work with, what is what's the the position or the title that the person usually has that you work with at the food service manufacturer, for example? It is wide ranging. Uh, okay. Everyone from VP and executive level uh, positions, uh, typically in either marketing or innovation. Okay. Uh, down to, and I shouldn't say down to, but inclusive of the uh, insights groups. So, and then everybody in between really. Um, but, but it's typically the projects that I work on are, are typically initiated either within the marketing department at some level or the innovation group at some level. Got it. And when it comes to trends, how do you track trends or how do you find them? So it's a, a, an ongoing activity, right? It's reading a lot of material, both well, and this is important, both in the industry, so all of those publications, the e-newsletters, uh, you know, what are chains up to, what kind of promotions are they doing? I mean, it's all of that data, all of the trends reports that come out and, and, and whatnot, uh, but inclusive of different publications outside of the industry, because I think very often the food industry becomes a bit tunnel-visioned with mm-hmm. regard to what 
influences food trends, right? Food trends beget food trends. And so we're just going to focus on food and beverages. Um, but the reality is that a lot of other industries impact what people want and look for in food, right? Fashion, health and beauty, uh, travel, uh, the healthcare industry. I mean, all these other industries can inform, inspire, and influence consumers with regard to their food and beverage needs. So I'm reading a lot of publications outside of that to understand what is happening. Uh, you know, scientific advancements that may or may not be food related, but might influence mm. how people want their food to, you know, support their health. You know, fashion, beauty, makeup, all of that. All of that can speak to where consumers' mindset is you know, wh where they're going to be heading and, and kind of what kind of experiences are they looking for? Sure. In this very moment, what are some of the trends that are that we're seeing? So uh, I think one of the biggest trends that is extremely macro is authenticity. And I, uh, 2023, I think, is really a year of refocusing on authenticity. And here I'm not talking about that extremely rigid definition of authenticity that was at play pre-pandemic, where we were talking about what a cuisine's culture or food should look like in order to be authentic and who should be allowed to and not allowed to offer that kind of authentic cuisine. Here, it's more about truth with, you know, truthfulness, uh, trustworthiness, honesty, reliability, the desire to know that who you are visiting, who you're spending your monies with, with is who they really claim to be, I guess, is the best way to describe it. That kind of authenticity. I think the younger consumers are looking for that. Older consumers are looking for that. It's coming out of the pandemic when there was so much anxiety and um, lack of confidence in what was happening and who to trust that people want to know who they can trust and who they can believe in and, and that people and, and organizations, when they tell them something, they can believe that that is in fact the case. If you are being sustainable, you are in fact really working toward that and not just giving lip service to it. So this idea of authenticity, and I think it's important for both manufacturers and operators to focus more on authenticity than talking points and trendy issues, because ultimately authenticity is 100% ownable and can never be replicated by anybody else. So no other brand can take your authenticity and use it to their advantage because then it is, in fact, inauthentic. So if you focus more on your authentic storyline, your authentic truth, your authentic, you know, what makes you so unique and what you, makes your patrons unique for buying you uh, or visiting you, then that is ownable. And that is a completely defensible competitive positioning in the marketplace. Could you maybe give an example at the operator level how authenticity is playing out? Yeah, actually, uh, a great example that just came up the other day. So you want to talk about a, a very authentic ad campaign was Duncan utilizing Ben Affleck in their Super Bowl commercial. <laughs> okay. Because Ben Affleck has talked about, for years, being a Duncan fan. Grew up or, you know, with Duncan, clearly from the Duncan market, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so for them to be able to leverage him in their ad campaign in a way that seemed so authentically fun and very much who he is, right? It wasn't staged. It wasn't some, some weird, overly produced uh, ad. I think really spoke to why people love Dunkin' and who the Dunkin' customer is and what makes Dunkin' different from Starbucks, for example. And it just came together very naturally and didn't seem like it was, here's a national 
operator who is leveraging a celebrity in order to gain, you know, likes or increased awareness. That's who they are. And so I think that is a great example of a very authentic ad campaign. And I, and from what I understand, it certainly seems to be paying off for them. Do you think this, this whole notion around authenticity is going to be something that goes into the future or will that start to change? No, I think that this is something that will last for okay. quite some time. Oh, and, wow. and I think the important uh, difference, because I'm actually, I've been putting together some decks on authenticity. So thinking a lot about what this means, I think very often when you start talking about authenticity, many people and companies start skewing toward thinking, okay, well, that means earthy, natural, you, you know. Um, That's what I was thinking in my head. I, I was starting to think of examples of like the local juice shop or yeah, the acai right. bowl shop, but maybe right. that's, but I think it's it's bigger than that. It is bigger than that. I mean, certainly if that's who you are, if you are natural and, you know, crunchy mm -hmm. and granola and whatever it is, then that's great. Then that is authentically who you are as a company, as a brand. Um, but it can just as easily be psychedelic colors and and glitter and uh, you know uh, very bold statements and outrageous behavior. Uh, think of um, Liquid Death is yes. very authentically okay. not natural uh, crunchy granola. <laughs> you know, they are <laughs> very naturally bold and you know um, insightful and uh, you know they're they're really interesting and that is very authentically who they are. So I think this idea of authenticity is a very broad spectrum within which everybody can play. There's no there's no limit to the scope of who can leverage authenticity. So it is very inclusive, right? Uh, which I think is very important going forward. Uh, and that's what makes it last for a very long because I don't think any, I, I can't see the pendulum swinging to where people are like, I want to, I want to buy, buy from a company I can't rely on and everything they say is garbage. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, can't, I can't trust a single thing that they ever print because uh, God knows if it's true or not. Yes. Do you think, going back to, I know we touched on briefly the recession or a potential mm -hmm. recession, do you think the consumer will will start to slow their purchases at food service operations or mm. based on where we're coming out of the pandemic, they'll continue where, at the level that they're at? To be honest with you, I, I think that boomers, Gen X, and millennials will probably continue their behavior. I don't really see... Yeah. Uh, big changes and big swings happening. Their behavior was pretty much set before the pandemic. And while it was certainly disrupted, they're old enough that their behavior is far more ingrained, right? Uh, so I, I see them pretty much going back to it, barring any any additional, you know, knock on wood, any additional uh, traumatic events. I think Gen Z is the interesting generation that we really need to think about. They okay. were at the point where they were only just beginning to develop their habits, which were completely and fully disrupted at an incredibly important developmental period for that age range. Um, that being said, I I didn't see that generation. I, there's a lot of back and forth on this. My perspective is that that generation is not nearly as food focused or food service focused as millennials were. Uh, food for millennials was inherently part of that generation's defining characteristic, right? What foods you ate, what brands you bought, where you visited. It was very, very ingrained in that generation. I don't see Gen Z being that kind of generation. I, they're certainly going to be utilizing food service because that is 
sort of part of modern society. But the question is, can food service entice them to become bigger customers than they might be without good reasons to become strong food service customers? I don't think it's going to be naturally inherently part of that generation. So our industry needs to think about what they need and how to solve for that generation in particular to lure them in and give them a good reason, a compelling reason to visit more often. So if they're not going out to food service, would they buy more through a grocery store or e-commerce, place like that? Yeah, I, I do think that they are buying some more at grocery stores. Now, a lot of this is kind of caveated, right? Because they're only, the oldest Gen Zs are only just now going out on their own, right? They're only right. a year or two post-graduation if they went to college, very, very early 20s. So a lot of this can change, right? But I do think that the reason I think retail is um, creating a greater competitive uh, point for food service within this generation is that retail took the opportunity during the pandemic to incredibly invest in not only the prepared foods at retail, but in better retail products. If you go to the freezer section of any big grocery store, uh, the fresh section, the innovation that's happening in those products is really, really impressive. A, a lot more convenience-oriented and yet higher quality broader array of cuisines, more interesting options. And I think Gen Z, they're simply focused on other things beyond food, uh, right. whether it's tech or you know finances or, or whatever it is. Food is not their primary focus. So I think they're okay using those convenience products out of retail, saving their money for other things that are more important to them. Oh, very interesting. You know, I, I'm part of the millennial generation and we've had our share of uh, stigmas, no doubt. Um, but I really don't know much about Gen Z. I, mm. I, I don't have any siblings. Oh, I'm actually an only child, so I don't have any siblings that are Gen Zers, you know, and, I, and I'm not really on Facebook or Instagram. I, I like LinkedIn a lot, but when it comes to social media, so I, I really don't follow them as much. So it, it's interesting to hear your perspective on how they're going to be different than millennials and, and other generations before them. Yeah, I think that, that that misconception that Gen Z was simply going to be millennials 2.0, right. I think that was not true before the pandemic and is even less true post-pandemic. They are an incredibly interesting generation given how much disruption and frankly, trauma they've gone through during, like I said, this incredibly important developmental period of their lives. They are obviously digital natives, but there is a growing backlash against the impact of, of digital in their life. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that social media has been incredibly detrimental to them mentally and emotionally. That's wow. playing out in a lot of other areas. So I think you do have part of that generation who's now thinking, you know, is, is this really something we should be invested in quite as much? They're placing a greater emphasis on service and personal interactions, whether it's, a, you know, in our industry or outside of our industry. So while tech can help facilitate transactions, they don't want it to be tech only. I think they are more mindful of the business side of things. So for millennials, right, this, the idea of sustainability, let's take sustainability. Millennials were about big goals, right? And, and shooting for the moon and, you know, like really, really uh, thinking big whether or not it was legitimately achievable. Uh, Gen Z is very sustainability focused as well, but they are more business, um, 
I don't want to say savvy, but focused, right? Okay. They want measurable goals. They want goals that can be tracked. They want reporting on how well companies are achieving those goals. And they're going to do the research to find out if that's true. And they also understand that if these companies are going to meet those goals, they need to be spending money with those companies. That if people don't buy the products, they're not going to be able to achieve the goals. And so they have that sort of monetary connection that other generations, including Gen, you know, Gen X certainly, never really had. I like this generation, just the way you're describing it. I feel I feel like I'd be better as a Gen Zer than a millennial. <laughs> um, it, back in 2008 in the recession, I believe that was when millennials started to hit the workforce. Mm-hmm. Did you see that as some, a catalyst that changed that generation at, at all, for good or for bad? Uh, I think that there was a frustration with millennials because of that, that their prospects looked like they weren't as good as any other generation, which I think did push a lot of millennials into smaller businesses. And you did see a lot of entrepreneurship with millennials Mm -hmm. on small scale and artisan products. And I think that skepticism and frustration with the lack of big business opportunities, I guess, for lack of a better way to describe it, that occurred as a result of the recession, really made that generation focus more on the smaller businesses and the artisan products and the more interesting options that you could have within the economy. And I think that that also did influence that kind of pie-in-the-sky outlook like, what can we achieve beyond this? Because this can't be as good as it's going to (laughs) get. You know, like, how, how can we really make things better And I think that was also an influence from their parents, who were the boomers, who were very much, you know, the dreamer generation. And and what are those big goals we can can hope for? And, you know, peace and love and, you know, without any necessarily like real, real concrete goals. But I think that that's good. I mean, we need that kind of, you know, every culture needs that inspired, innovative, you know, let's reach for the stars kind of mentality. You know, as we think about Gen Z, I have read some articles where there's a concern that Gen Z is not going to be as innovative as previous generations, partially because of social media and the negative impact mentally and emotionally, partially because of the trauma that they went through, that they they lack that kind of rebellious streak that every younger generation has had to break out of the norm and and fight against, you know, what society expects, that this generation isn't necessarily doing that to the same degree. And, and will this be a turning point for our country culturally? If they are not like that and the next generation is not like that, how will that impact us going forward? If there is a lack of funnel of, you know, innovative and rebellious thinking. Okay, I lied. I do know one thing about Gen Z. Okay. Uh, and that is around, I've noticed when they hit 16, for my generation, when we hit 16, we were ready to get our license, get a car, and get moving. And I think that was like yeah. previous generations. But Gen yeah. Z is the one that I've noticed and, and, and witnessed go through it. When they hit 16, uh, you, you know, it's not really something that it's incredibly important. It's they can mm-hmm. Uber around, you know, they can they can use other means of, of travel. But the, I, I just find that so fascinating. For me, I was like, I, I got to get my license. It, it's it's my it's my ticket to freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so funny how it, it you know by generation to generation it's different. Yeah, well, I think that, that that's part of it, right? This Gen Z, and you're absolutely correct that they are not interested in 
necessarily moving out of home. They're not interested in getting their license. There is a lot of evidence that they're not interested in drinking. They're not interested in sex. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm not advocating for, you know, any of that stuff. But I guess that idea that they're not ready for that level of freedom and responsibility, whether or not you understand the consequences, but being able to take your life in your own hands, that there's not that same kind of impulse. I think that's partially what the concern is. What does that mean for kind of ongoing development, ongoing uh, thought processes, and how will that impact the way they navigate them, you know, their way in the world? Yeah, no, that totally makes sense to me. You mentioned about the millennial generation, about them getting more into small businesses, entrepreneurship. I, I might be wrong in saying this, but I feel like the American dream when it, it, it at one point was home ownership. Uh, mm-hmm. Now I think it's shifting a little bit more towards entrepreneurship and owning your own business. Do you see trends mm-hmm. like that? Or is that just a crazy opinion that I have? No, well, I, it, the homeownership <laughs> is is a bit of a separate conversation. I think the entrepreneurship is very true. And, and there is a lot of evidence with Gen Z that they are actually very entrepreneurial, hmm. that they do want to be working for themselves and feel a great deal of ownership. Now, I think the challenge with their entrepreneurship right now is that a lot of it is driven by social media, TikTok being a great example. And so the way they're being entrepreneurial is not necessarily, it's more iterative than it is necessarily truly innovative right? Um, that they're making money on their own, but not necessarily by reinventing things or inventing the new XYZ or changing the way we do things. It's simply making your own money in a way you you design, I guess, without really creating a lot of innovate, innovation in order to support that entrepreneurship, yeah. I guess, for the best way. It, now, with homeownership, though, it is interesting. Millennials were definitely a lot less about owning, that, that they were skewing a little bit away of owning cars, owning mm-hmm. houses, and, and it was a little less about that ownership idea. There's evidence that Gen Z is far more interested in ownership because that generation, which is part of the entrepreneurship, is very financially focused. They're very focused on their personal finances. They're very focused on growing their personal finances. And part of that is home ownership. Now, how they approach home ownership, what they're willing to do for home ownership, and how, you know, where they want to own homes, I think that's something that we're waiting to see play out a bit more. With all of this in mind, and in, in with our discussion thus far, what are some things that food service manufacturers? can start to implement today or in the near future to help you know start getting to the general the gen z's or even to the millennials well i think probably with millennials hopefully they've got that kind of nailed yeah, down because millennials true. at this point you know they are who they are and we've been talking about them for about 15 years so, <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully they all yeah. have a fairly good handle on millennials um i i think for gen z I think that authenticity and, and being very honest yeah. about who you are is going to be extremely important. Uh, I think that's what drove the desire to be on social media to begin with and what also powered the shift from Instagram as the preferred social media uh, platform to TikTok because the thinking was that TikTok was more authentic, was really more user-generated content and and very honest, right? And then there have been others that have come. So I think that, I think authenticity has to be the number one. 
Again, I think if you are going to claim you are doing certain things, whether it's in the sustainability realm or inclusivity, you need to be very specific. You need to have extremely specific goals, uh, measurable goals, timed goals that can be tracked, that you are tracking for people. And then make sure if you're not going to hit them, you're honest about it, you're upfront about it, and you you explain why. Uh, I also think that with, with Gen Z in particular, although I think that this is relevant to millennials as well as Gen X, I also think that there should be a certain amount of emotive or emotional innovation that's occurring at the base because pe- people can get whatever they want. Nobody can own price, quality, convenience, speed of service. All of that can be you know, replicated by a whole host of current and future competitors we have a handle on how to get what we want and evaluate the product itself. But I think what what Americans, particularly Gen Z, are having a very hard time with is emotional and mental health. And and you see that playing out in the self-care. You see that playing out in the great resignation. You see that playing out in how people are trying to get a handle on what will make them happy long-term. A lot of people haven't figured it out. A lot of people who resigned during the great resignation are regretting that decision. There are plenty of studies out about that. But I think it's that underlying desire to figure out how do I get happy and how do I sustain mm-hmm. that long term? And I think if, if brands can think more about how their product can play within that space, it doesn't need to be functional ingredients. I mean, that could be part of it. But how do you make people's lives easier, better, happier? You know, how do you create those nostalgic experiences or great eating experiences? And how does how do you communicate that beyond just high quality, good price, you know, easy to use, because I think that is going to resonate a lot more in the, in the near and midterm, certainly. The point around mental health, my, my wife is a marriage, marriage and family therapist, Mm. and she deals mainly with children, young teens, young adults, kind of that gen, that Gen Z generation. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating how many go see her and tell their friends. And, you know, it's, or when I was going through school, maybe I just wasn't aware of it. I could have just been naive. But I feel like it wasn't as widely accepted. So it's interesting mm. to hear that point. I, I agree. I think it wasn't, certainly when I was in school, it wasn't widely accepted and certainly wasn't widely used. You didn't hear of a lot of people. I, I can't yeah. even think of a single person I knew who, who, who was going through that kind of thing. But I think not only is it more accepted now, but it is more needed. Like I said, there are plenty of studies about the impact, not just of the pandemic, but more specifically social media on the mental and emotional health of Gen Z. And that is amplified among Gen Z females. So it's not only that it's more accepted, but it is definitely a dire need within this generation. And the the need to figure out how this generation kind of climbs out of this emotional and mental situation that that. that not that they've gotten themselves into, but that they found themselves in, I think is going to be critical. And if if they can't figure that out, there are going to be long-term consequences, not just for that generation, but for this country culturally as well. Yeah, definitely. So I'm sure you get this question all the time, and it's around the future. What are some things to prepare for in terms of trends that manufacturers or distributors can prepare for in the future? And how is Menu Matters helping your clients get there? So uh, that's a good question. It's a challenging one, certainly, yeah. uh, particularly because so many things are up in the air right now. We've sure. got the war in the Ukraine, whether or not we head into recession. There's a lot of, you know, we've got the 
the election coming up, which is just going to be a whole new set of <laughs> yeah, uh, traumatic experiences for somebody, you know, <laughs> no matter what, what ends up happening. But uh, so I think it's, it is hard to predict out right now just because there's been so much turmoil and so much disruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think going forward, though, we will see the ongoing recovery of food service. But I do think that uh, the competitive nature of food service is going to change. I think we're going to see vending uh, change and evolve incredibly, which is going to be expanding where food service can happen, where great food can be very easily, quickly, and affordably. But I also think that's going to create huge challenges for convenience stores. It's going to create huge challenges for uh, quick service restaurants in particular. I think we're going to see uh, an ongoing divide between higher end, and I don't mean like haute cuisine, but higher end casual dining, fine dining, which are very hospitality and experience driven versus more transactional food service on the other side, which is more about speed, price, you know, functionality of of that experience itself. And I think the gulf between those two are actually going to widen, which will be a challenge for those operators who do exist in between those two extremes, but will probably open up new opportunities for something you know, I can't predict that will be a completely different food service model. I think that we're going to get back into innovation, right? There's been a little bit of an innovation lull just because innovation is hard when you mm-hmm. can't reliably get the ingredients you need and the prices keep going up. But I think we're going to go back easy, very quickly. I think probably by the beginning of next year, we'll be back in very significant innovation mode. Um, and I think that it's going to be more transformative innovation. I think we're going to be looking at manufacturers and operators who are thinking big with their innovation, not mm-hmm. just iterative, what's the next XYZ flavored, whatever it is that we're putting on the menu, but truly transformative innovation uh, that really shakes things up. So I think toward the end of this year into next year and the year after, I think is going to be very exciting. I think we're going to see new cuisines. I think we're going to have access to new ingredients. I, I think it's going to be a, a really great you know, though there will be ongoing challenges, a really great time for the industry. I, I love to hear that. You know, anything that's good for food service, I, I view it as, hey, we went through uh, a very tough time in 2020, even 2021. We we deserve some wins along the way. We so. do. We do. And, <laughs> and as, it, as, as, as to how many trends can help them, we're here. Uh, we consider every relationship we get into long-term. Uh, we... It, all of our clients have been with us, if not since the beginning, then for a minimum of two to three years, uh, back to when I actually started Many Trends. Uh, we are in it with you. We are a partner in ensuring your success. And so Menu Trends will always put that forward and that first with every relationship we get into, um, no matter how big or small the project is. So so Menu Trends is the partner uh, that you can rely on to work toward your strategic goals and nothing else. I love that. And how can those listening to this episode, how can they find you? How can they reach out to you? What's the best? Sure. Uh, The website is menumatters.com. So that's M-E-N-U-M-A-T-T-E-R-S.com. They can then contact me directly through the website. But my email address, my direct email address is Maeve, M-A-E-V-E. So my first name at menumatters.com. And our phone number is 802-430-7085 to think about that for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) You got it down. I love it. (laughs) Well, Maeve, I just want to say thank you so much. I I know you're busy. I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me. And I know there's going to be a lot of people that resonate with this episode. So just thank you. I appreciate it. 
Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. And enjoy the rest of your day. Yes, you do. Okay. Okay.